0: thought I turned it on. It's got a green light on. There it goes. Okay. I started to get worried for a second. Maybe everybody was hearing me sing during the thing. <laughs> that wouldn't be good. Um, well, are you guys enjoying the heat? Yeah. Yeah. Too hot, <laughs> too hot. <laughs> too hot. Um, Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Corinthians, chapter 1. This will kind of be our our focus passage here for a little bit. Um, I'll give you a second to turn there. 1 Corinthians, chapter 1. We'll start in verse 10 and go through 18. This is uh, the Apostle Paul writing a letter to the church at Corinth. And we'll uh, pick up here partway through. Verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of God, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to be here today, gathered together in your name. And we ask, Lord, as we read and study your word, God, that you would teach us uh, the truth through your Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that your message would be heard today, not mine. God, I ask for changed hearts. Thank you for the cross. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> In our sermon series on the gospel, we've been looking at the unavoidable truths of the gospel, and that is according to the word of God. We, these are the things that we must believe about the gospel. That God has always existed in three forms Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He created the world and everything in it, including mankind, and it was good. And he created mankind in his image. Mankind rebelled against God, we disobeyed him. We we stopped following his command and we fell. And sin and death entered the world. But God had a plan from eternity. And that plan was that our sin would be covered. It would be taken care of by the promised Messiah. And in his wisdom, at his appointed time in history, he came to earth as a man. Jesus, the Son of God. Emmanuel, the Messiah. He's fully man, fully God. And he came and lived a sinless, perfect life in order to be the Savior of all the world for those who would believe And Jesus had a message for the people that he lived and walked with when he was here. And the message was about himself, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And that no man comes to the Father except through him. And the only way back to the Father, and eternal life. Last week, Alistair came and preached here, and he talked about the Sermon on the Mount. He preached about Jesus being here. And among other things, he reminded us that Jesus' message was not what people expected. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus pointed out that the way we live is not just about doing everything by the book. God is concerned with the condition of our hearts. Jesus continued to reveal that following God's law was good, but that it had no power to save us. Something else was needed, and that was the perfect Lamb of God. So now we come to our sermon On the cross of Christ. And if you could be any more unavoidable than unavoidable, this would be the one. It is of the utmost importance that we believe it and cling to it. The Apostle Paul was more concerned about this than anything else. And that is what we'll talk about briefly in our 1 Corinthians text, there in chapter 1. Now in the text that we read, keep in mind that we've skipped forward a little bit from the cross, from the time of the cross, and Paul and the other apostles have been spreading the gospel, uh, and the gospel uh, is being believed, and people are being saved. The church is growing, but already people are getting sidetracked, and that is what Paul's concerned about here, and this is what he's addressing. Paul gets word that there are divisions and quarreling in the church at Corinth. He's very concerned about this, and he appeals to them, he pleads with them by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that they all agree that there is no divisions among them. In fact, Paul calls on them to be united in the same mind and the same judgment, that their minds would be on Jesus and their judgment would be that there is no other truth. And this is according to the word of God. No other truth than the word of God in this matter. <clears throat> and the example that Paul gives is, is the people were quarreling over the better, who the better teacher was. And he gave us that list of people, and several names, and he included himself and he included Jesus, that people were claiming to follow each of these. And these people were so caught up in their, who their favorite preacher was that they were ignoring what was being taught and creating disunity In the process. And Paul says, put a stop to that. In verses 13 through 18, Paul wanted nothing to do with people clinging to him or any other preacher or any fancy words or clever ways of saying things that would take away from the simple truth and power of the cross of Christ. We know from Scripture that the men in Paul's list of preachers are godly, faithful men. Paul's not claiming these men are false teachers. He's calling for unity, a refocusing by those who are potentially damaging the message of the cross with their divisions. Another important thing to be aware of here is that Paul is writing this to people who are saved, the true believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we know this because he's referring to them as brothers. And this term here is used inclusive of brothers and sisters. In Christ. That's the key, in Christ. The reason this is important is because Paul can safely call for unity among true believers, because it is understood that the message of the gospel is always the same and never changes. It is sound doctrine. In order to be called a brother or sister in Christ, you must believe in Christ's gospel. Paul would not, and we should not, refer to someone as a brother or sister in Christ if they are not. Paul handles false teachers quite severely in Scripture, and he never calls for unity with them. There is no unity in Christ with someone who believes something else about salvation. Even if they use the name of Jesus Christ in everything they say, you are not in Christ if you have not believed in his gospel. There is a difference between being loving and kind towards someone, desiring to share the gospel with them because they're lost, and and there's a difference between that and uniting yourself with them and endorsing a different gospel. If some preacher or teacher is calling for unity with religious groups that don't believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, you don't want any part of that. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Galatians, chapter 1. Galatians, chapter 1, and we'll go verses 6 through 9. And this is Paul, again, writing a letter to the church at Galatia. He says, I'm astonished if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. The world wants us all to get along and coexist. And that's fine in the sense that we can be kind and loving to our fellow human beings. But just as Jesus did with the woman at the well and with others that he confronted, he called sin, sin. He told them the truth. The word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ don't change. We change as we move away from them. We must stop moving away from the truth of the gospel and the word of God. Hold tight to them. So what did happen at the cross? What was the power of the cross of Christ that Paul was so concerned about and that he wrote about to the Corinthian believers? First of all, what happened at the cross was exactly what God meant to happen. Exactly what God had been telling his people about for hundreds of years, down to the detail. And even though Jesus was the fulfillment of prophecy, the long-awaited Messiah, and he came to seek and save the lost, he was rejected. Rejected by the very people he created, including those who claim to love God. John 1, 10 through 11, we'll put that up on the screen for you. John 1, 10 through 11 says, He was in the world, this is Jesus, and, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. What led to the need for the cross is everything we've been learning about so far in our series on the gospel. And the Corinthian believers understood this. They were taught from the Old Testament scriptures about the prophecies, of what would take place and then heard from eyewitnesses about Jesus fulfilling those prophecies. So let's look at a couple of those prophecies as we start with the betrayal of Jesus and move forward. There are many prophecies that are fulfilled in the life of Jesus and we don't have time to go over all of them but we'll start, we'll start here at the time when Jesus is betrayed. And quickly we'll, we'll pop up for you is Psalms 41.9 even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And who is Jesus referencing here? Judas. Turn into the book of John. Okay, we we'll go to John chapter 13. And we'll be in verses 21 through 27. So the psalm passage that we just read is Old Testament. Prophecy about what would take place. And John 13, 21 says, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple leaned back against Jesus and said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. So the Old Testament predicted this. Jesus just now predicts that this will happen. This is not the actual betrayal. It's Jesus saying who is going to betray him. So turn over to Luke, or back to Luke. Chapter 22. A lot of scripture references we'll we'll be flipping to here. Luke chapter 22, 47 through 53. And we'll see the fulfillment of this prophecy. Luke 22, 47 through 53. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. When Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders, who had come out against him. Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Again, we'll look at another prophecy about this time. Back in Isaiah, if you'll flip back to Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. We'll see the prophecy here, and then we'll flip to the prophecy being fulfilled. Isaiah 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Okay, back over then to Matthew. The book of Matthew. Matthew. chapter 26 and we will be in verses 66 through 68 so this is after Jesus being falsely accused by the religious leaders And he is claimed to be the son of God. And that's all they need to hear. And the priest says, what is your judgment? He's asking the people, what is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Jesus' physical and emotional pain would continue through the lies and false accusations of the Jewish leaders, and the beatings and mocking of the Roman soldiers. The gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John each have explanations of what happened to Jesus to give us the complete picture. Without the time to go over everything, I would, I would like to touch on some key points in all four of them. And we'll look at the account of the crucifixion from Matthew and the account of Jesus' death from Mark uh, with some added points from Luke and John. So uh, we'll turn to Matthew chapter 27. We should be right there from where we just were. And we'll look at verses 24 through 44. Matthew 27, 24 through 44. It's a lot of, it's a lot of reading here, but we don't read these often, and it's good to be reminded of what Christ went through verse 24 So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing but rather that a riot was being beginning he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying I am innocent of this man's blood see to it yourselves and all the people answered his blood be on us and on our children then he released for them barabbas and having scourged Jesus delivered him to be crucified And the scourging is with the whip with several strands, with bone and metal and other things embedded in it. It's what they use to scourge people. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, king of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but then he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put a charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then the two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in this way. Turn over to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, 33 through 39. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salom. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there they were also women who came up with him to Jerusalem. In Luke 23, it says, Before he died, Jesus cried out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now turn to John, chapter 19. Verses 28 through 30. John 19, 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. We know that Jesus had to die for our sin. But I find myself asking, why did Jesus have to suffer so much before he died? Where do we have an example of that in the Old Testament scriptures? The Israelites had to sacrifice animals for the blood to atone for their sin. They brought their animals, and the priests followed God's instructions for the killing and the sprinkling of the blood and everything else that went into those offerings. I can't think of a single time when they did anything but kill the animals. They didn't have hatred for the animal. They didn't didn't mock it and spit on it and beat it so bad you couldn't tell what kind of creature it was. But when Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, offers himself as the atonement for their sin, that's how they treated him. They beat him so badly, you couldn't even recognize him as a human being. And why? Well, for one thing, that is what God said the Messiah would have to suffer and predicted that things would happen that way. Was the enduring of, physical, was the, enduring of the physical abuse and torture what paid for our sin? You know, there have been many faithful Christians over the centuries who have endured this kind of physical torture at the hands of cruel and evil men. Could their suffering have produced the same results that Christ did? No. It's not that the physical pain wasn't horrific, but I believe it was something else that was worse. I believe it was the thing that Jesus prayed about in the garden before he was arrested. He knew what was coming, and the thought of it was agonizing. Turn with me to the book of Matthew. Chapter 26 again. Matthew chapter 26, 36 through 44. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Now this is before the cross. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is, indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again for the second time he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Luke says at this moment in the garden that Jesus' sweat was like great drops of blood falling to the ground. The cup that Jesus did not want to endure was the anger, wrath, and punishment of God against sin. He knew this would separate him from his father, And we can never really understand the spiritual agony that Jesus felt because we have never had the relationship with the Father that he did to that point and now does again. I tried to come up with something to describe it, but I don't think it's actually possible to come up with a scenario that we can wrap our minds around to even come close to understanding what it took to pay for our sin. To understand... We would have to know what it is like to always live in perfect relationship with the Father from always, to experience His perfect love and fellowship every second, to never have ever done anything against Him or oppose His will, to never have done a single thing wrong, never an evil thought or word, never have lied or hurt anyone, to never have felt guilt or shame never had any impurity in you, to never once have experienced a moment without the the most amazingly beautiful relationship with the Father. And on the cross, when the Father turned away from him, Jesus felt what he had never felt before, and he poured out every last bit of his soul for you and me. In the agony of that crushing weight, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Second Corinthians, we'll put this one on the screen for you. Second Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was not a victim here. The Jews and the Roman soldiers did not overpower him as if he was helpless. He willingly went to the cross for us. This was orchestrated and accomplished by God. Turn to Isaiah chapter 53. I told you we'd be back here the last time I preached. Um, Isaiah 53 We'll look at verses 10 through 12. Again, this is Old Testament prophecy of what would, what would happen at the cross. But we need to really pay attention to what's going on here. Isaiah 53, 10 through 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. and makes intercession for the transgressors. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Nobody else did this. Some of your translations say, it pleased God to crush him. Not pleased to make him suffer for suffering's sake, but pleased to make him suffer for our sake and by what the result of Christ's suffering was. What Jesus accomplished was to satisfy the penalty for sin, to satisfy the wrath of God. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hebrews 9.22 says, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Jesus makes it so that we can be accounted righteous. That is the power of the cross of Christ that Paul wanted the Corinthian believers to focus on. When Jesus said, it is finished, he had done everything that had to be done for your sin and my sin to be paid for. The cross of Christ is literally the most horrific thing in history and the most wonderful thing in history all at the same time. This is what we sing about when we're singing about Jesus. For what other person do we sing and celebrate their death as a great and mighty thing? And when that veil was torn from top to bottom in the temple... It was a sign that we now have access to the Father through Jesus Christ. He is our high priest and intercedes for us with the Father. The other unavoidable truth of the gospel that we'll see today is that Jesus did not stay in the grave. Old Testament prophecy said that the Holy One would not see corruption. Jesus himself said that after three days he would rise from the dead. Go to the book of Luke. Please, Luke chapter 23. Okay, Luke 23, and we're going to go from verse 50 through Luke 24, 12. It sounds long, but it's not that bad. <laughs> okay, this is after Jesus is crucified now. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw that the tomb, saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested, according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day and rise at what had happened through his resurrection Jesus conquered death Jesus not only pays for our sin by the cross but brings us from darkness to light from death to eternal life by his resurrection turn with me to 2 Timothy we're almost done 2 Timothy chapter 1 verses 8 through 13 Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord nor of me his prisoner but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and teacher. Which is why I suffer as I do, But I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This is what Paul held so tightly to. This is what he preached. It is what we believe and is what gives us life. If you find yourself not believing that Jesus actually died, was buried, and resurrected from the dead, you cannot be saved. This is unavoidable. I want to end with 1 Corinthians again. The book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 2. 1 through 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Does your faith rest in the power of God? Do you believe in the unavoidable truth of the word of the cross? We must believe if we're to be saved. Stand with me and pray, please. Father, you are an amazing God. You are worthy of all praise and honor. And, Lord, we thank you for the cross of Christ, for the power that is in that to transform lives. Lord, that our disobedience led to the suffering of Christ. It weighs heavy on us. But we're also joyful and grateful. We sing and we praise you because of this. God, that you saw fit to crush him for our iniquities, making a way for us if we would believe in the Son of God. I pray, Lord, for our hearts today that are here and whatever you're speaking to them, God, that, that we would listen. We give you praise and thanks for Jesus Christ. Help us to live a life that's worthy of this Help us to live joyful. Help us to tell others what you have done for us. We give you all praise. In Jesus' name, amen.